Before I begin preaching today, I would like to read from two different texts, one from the New Testament, and then we're going to look one at the Old Testament, but we're going to be looking at a broader section of Judges concerning the life of Samson. So the first one I'm going to read from is 2 Corinthians. This is our New Testament text. My wife told me I should put my glasses on, so I will. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, um, starting at 7, we'll read through verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. To keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And then we're going to look at our Old Testament text. I believe it's around maybe 255 in your ESV Bible. In chapter 16, I'm going to start reading from chapter um, 27. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached out towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left on the other, Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed more, many more when he died than while he lived. Thus the word of the Lord. Have you ever been so cut down by shame that you felt like you could never get up again? Where you might have seemed so strong in the past, where God was using you to minister in his kingdom, but for some reason right now you lie in a helpless pile, perhaps bleeding in a pile of shame. And this message is for you. I want you to look with me in the book of Judges. If you're still looking, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. We are looking at the judge Samson. The book of Judges dedicates four chapters to the lives of Samson, and I will summarize some of the events of his life and pull out some points for us to ponder here today. The story begins in Judges 13. It starts out different than all the other events in that book. The people of Israel 
don't cry this time out to God for a deliverer. They don't repent of their sins, but God raises up a judge anyways because God is a God of love, a God of love for his covenant people. Even though Israel had forgotten God, God has not forgotten his people, his people Israel. There were, though, some amongst them who did remain faithful to God. We are told that Samson's mother and father worshipped Yahweh. The narrative begins with Samson's mother praying to God in her barrenness. She is visited by an awesome angel of the Lord who promises that they will have a son who will help deliver them, help deliver Israel from the Philistines. The child, however, comes with some instructions. He is to be a Nazarite. That is, he's to be consecrated unto the Lord, just like mentioned in Numbers 6, 1 through 8. Nazarites were to not touch dead things, not drink fermented drinks, and no razor was to be used upon their head. The instruction of the angel is that the mother during her pregnancy is to touch no fermented drink, which is simply good advice. And the boy was not to cut his hair. This consecration was not just to be for a season, but for his whole life. Now, as parents, we often baptize our children and make vows to raise them up in the Lord. Perhaps you felt that the weight of raising up your child consecrated to the Lord. Well, Samson's father was very concerned with this specially consecrated child and how he should be raised, and he was feeling the weight of the momentous task. And under that weight, he petitioned God once again, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again and teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. And that angel of the Lord came again, and he did not give him the instructions, give much more instructions beyond what was formally told to his wife. So... Manoah was perhaps hoping that the Lord would have given him a detailed manual on how to raise the child unto the Lord. And young Christian parents often today often feel the same. Manoah and his wife didn't receive customized instructions for their children on how to raise their child, but they simply had to simply learn to trust what God had revealed in his word and trust in that alone. It is tough, but we need to simply walk in this role as parents by faith and not only by sight. Manoah didn't need all the answers right then. He only needed to obey what was given to him. And as parents of covenant children, we too need to simply trust in God's word and to obey his instructions. We're told in the book of Proverbs that we should train a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. That is a proverb, a gentle truth, which many of us have experienced with joy. And some of us have seen our children walking straight and, with the straight and narrow with their hands in the hand of the Lord, putting their only faith and comfort in the Lord, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are leading a consecrated life to the Lord. But the truth of Proverbs 22.6 is not always a truth for every single parent. Some of us have seen our children stray from that which we've instructed them. Some of them might get caught up in the values of our society and culture and time. 
And as we read Samson, about Samson, it seems to be true of him as well. The fanfare and the trumpets of a hero to be born turns out much different than what we picture at the very beginning. The Hebrew Hercules, the mighty man of strength, turns out to be a real moral weakling. His character throughout the narrative seems to be dominated by selfishness, lust, vengeance, brutish stupidity, or foolhardiness. And as we look at him, we might be asking, what is God doing here? By the time chapter 14 rolls around, we see the boy of strength has a weakness for women. One commentary called him a he-man with a she-weakness. In particular, Samson had a weakness for non-believing women, Philistine women. He never guarded his eyes throughout the text. Samson's eye is mesmerized by a Philistine girl. So he tells his mom and his dad to make some arrangements so that he might be able to get married to her. Samson's parents probably have to be heartbroken at this point, sort of like when some of our own children marry outside of the Christian faith to be dragged away from that faith. Manoah and his wife might be saying, this isn't part of the game plan. You are a Nazarite. You're to be separate. You're to be consecrated to God. Marry a nice Israelite girl, Samson. Indeed, that was an instruction of God to not marry outside of the faith. But Samson is reflective of the moral decline of Israel. At the end of the book of Judges, it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Samson also said, it's going to be my way. If you look at chapter 14, verse 3, Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is the right one for me. He's doing what seems right in his own eyes. Manoah and his wife have to be saying to God, you promised great things for our child God. You called him to be consecrated to you. What's going on here? What are you doing? Didn't you promise a deliverer and not a delinquent? Though Samson's parents couldn't see it, look at what God is doing. In chapter 14, verse 4, it says, His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. As we look on, we will see that God's strength, God's strength intervened several times in Samson's life, even though he lived a good portion of his life in folly. You may feel that much of your life is full of folly, that you don't deserve God's power to work through you, or you may look around you and look at people and their folly and say that they don't deserve God to work through them. But God often shoots holes into our expectations because God is a God of grace. And St. Paul says in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But he also says in Romans 6, what then shall we say concerning this grace? Shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? Certainly not. God's grace is not an excuse for our rebellion and our foolishness, but we can rejoice that it doesn't exclude us from being part of what God is doing in his kingdom. In fact, 
we can rejoice that God is also in the business of righting our wrongs and using our failures as the foundations for his own success. So take heart that God can even use the most bizarre and foolish amongst us, and he often does. I want to take a look at some of the remarkable displays of Samson's strength. While he was walking to meet his Philistine bride-to-be, he was attacked by a lion and he wrung its neck as if it were a goat. After losing a bet to a bunch of cheaters, he killed 30 men of the Philistine city of Ashkelon and took their finest embroidered garments as, as pay. After being cheated out of his wife, who was given to his best man, Samson caught 300 jackals and by hand and tor- uh, tied torches to pears which burnt all the grains, vines, and all the crops surrounding the land. After his wife and his father-in-law were burned by the Philistines for arousing the wrath of Samson, Samson killed many Philistines. He then hid in a cave in Judah where 3,000 men of Judah came to him and complained that he was stirring trouble up with the Philistines. With his permission, they tied him up with new ropes and handed him over to the Philistines. And no sooner did the Philistines cheer that they had him that he broke the ropes as if they were made out of charcoal and he picked up a donkey's jaw and killed a thousand men with it. The Philistines feared this man. He was a real bad dude. Not like Corn Pop, right? He's, he's much worse of a bad dude. Let me tell you a little story. There was an old fellow who had been in the North Woods for weeks by himself, camping out. Each night at dusk, he built a campfire, boiled water for coffee, and took out his skill to fry up some bacon for dinner. He was sitting by the fire one night, the water boiling and the bacon sizzling, and he heard a tremendous racket in the bush. The sound was like the roaring of a freight train, and the trees fell over and branches snapped. The biggest bear he'd ever seen lumbered into the clearing. On the back of the bear was a tough-looking ombre, holding a seven-foot live rattlesnake in his hand. The man shouted and screamed as he brought the bear to a skinning halt, bit the head of the rattlesnake off, and flung it into the bush. Then he slid off the back of the bear, turned, and hit it right between the eyes, knocking him unconscious. The camper was speechless as the wild-eyed renegade walked over to the fire, tossed the boiling coffee down his throat, drank the hot grease from the skillet, and ate all the bacon in one bite. As he wiped his hands in the poison ivy and slapped the bear back into consciousness, he turned to the camper and said, Partner, I'm sorry I can't stay around and visit you for a while, but I've got to keep on moving because there's a real bad dude chasing me. Samson was that kind of a real bad dude. The Philistines wanted him gone, but they were afraid to lay a hand on him. In chapter 15, we see that Samson goes to the Philistine city of Gaza. It's a walled city. The only way in and out through that city was through a city gate. Well, Samson went there to lay with a prostitute. 
Well, the word got out that he was in town, and they planned to ambush him in the morning. But in the middle of the night, he gets up, and with superhuman strength, he took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two gate posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried, him, carried it to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Some say that might be as far as 40 miles away. Nonetheless, all this is accomplished through superhuman strength. Perhaps in your mind, when you picture Samson, you picture a robust man with humongous pecs that could dance as he wiggles his arm around 20-inch radiuses. But I don't know uh, what that could even do in such a case. His strength was superhuman. In fact, he might have been just your average Joe. In chapter 16, Delilah asks him a real pertinent question. Where does your great strength lie? It's obvious to everybody that he has great strength by his deeds. But the source of his strength is an enigma, a mystery. When Delilah asks, he's... He doesn't stand up and flex his arms and say, it's these, baby. No, he, he's no Old Testament Rambo. He's no Mr. Universe. No Samson. Samson knew the source of his strength. We're told in chapter 14 that the source of his strength is the Lord. Judges 14, 6 and 19 says, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. Despite all of Samson's flaws, I have to say this concerning Samson. He realized early on that his power was totally dependent upon God. He relied upon God in the hours of his needs. In fact, he realized his need for God even after the hour of his greatest need. For example, after he killed a thousand Philistines, he prayed to God for simply water because he was thirsty. He asked that he not perish after the victory, and God did give him water. Though I'm very careful to not push allegories of preaching, I think there is a fitting example here. It is, leg it is legitimate for us to connect Samson's Nazarite consecration with our accessibility to divine power when it is needed. It was not until Samson completely betrays the consecration that his strength entirely evaporates. In a similar way, our ability to serve God is equally dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is never more easily grieved or quenched than when our consecration to Christ is compromised by sin. The story of Samson is a classic example of conflict, escalation, fueled by anger, pride, jealousy, and fear. And yet God was able to use it all for his ends. God was at work even in the process of those bad choices. Before we consider the compromise that Samson fell into, we should also consider the broader compromise of Israel. If you look at Judges 15, 11, when it shows the 3,000 men coming from Judah to that cleft of, of the rock of Etam, they said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? 
What is this you've done to us? Let me interpret. Samson, don't rock the boat. The Israelites have become complacent to secure the peace. They don't want to get uncomfortable. Aren't we often guilty of the same thing in the church today, particularly across America and Europe? The Reformed theologian J. Gratian Machen in 1923 wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, which warned us of the danger of compromise, and it was very prophetic. Compromise is a slippery slope that slides Christianity away from Christ further and further until it is no longer Christianity at all. As the word of God is undermined as the truth, we replace it with our own truth, and we do what is right in our own eyes. And the only intolerable thing today seems to be intolerance in itself. Now we have lesbian Methodist preachers, Episcopalian gay bishops, LBGTQ theologians, Christian Reformed Church, as a denomination, we cannot afford to not be consecrated to God. Too many churches have a form of godliness but deny its power. We need to learn from Samson and the people of his time that we are often the product of our time and we need to ask God to throw off our cultural baggage and have it thrown overboard. Let's take a look at how Samson lost his consecration. The strong man had a weakness for Philistine women. We've all heard of the tragic love affair of Samson and Delilah, and we should, shouldn't really call it a love affair, but a lust affair. Samson likely, was likely a giddy schoolboy who sought sensual sexual pleasure from Delilah. And Delilah used, to, used him to secure her own financial future. The five rulers of the Philistines came to her, and each of them offered her 1,100 shekels of silver for the secret of Samson's strength. It was obviously superhuman, so they figured it, that he must have been carrying some type of talisman or something that gave him strength. So Delilah, whose name means weak or pinning, goes to work. The woman, as soft as water, begins to work on this man of stone. Sweetie, tell me the secret of your strength. If you love me, you will tell me. Lovers don't have secrets. Notice the progress in chapter 16. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs that have never been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. When he wakes up, he bursts the fresh throngs and shakes the men off outside. Delilah tries again. He said, if anyone tries, try, ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. Now, if Delilah had done her work, homework, she would have known of the previous episode where he broke the ropes. So he breaks the ropes and carries on once again. They say that uh, love can make you blind, but you, how blind can Samson be? She is obviously not the kind of girl that Samson should have fell in love with. If he had as much brain as brawn, he would have been out of there by now, but she continues. But I guess that uh, could be said of often most of us when we are entrapped by sin. It entices us. It pulls us in 
compromising bit by bit. I came across an illustration which demonstrates how harmless self-indulgence can be. It can be doubly lethal. I remember him. I was rather small when he was still on the radio. But I'm sure many of you remember Paul Harvey. He told of an incredible story describing how Eskimos used to kill a wolf simply by coating several layers of of frozen blood on a sharp knife sticking out of the frozen tundra. Apparently, the wolf picks up the scent, and after circling the knife warily, begins licking the frozen blood. He begins to lick faster and faster as the desire for blood literally drives the wolf wild. So great becomes his craving that the wolf nearly never even notices that the sting of the sharp blade on his tongue as the blood being consumed gradually becomes his own. Morning finds the wolf lying dead in the snow. Temptation lures us, each of us, just as the blood of a knife attracts the unsuspecting wolf. We may wearily respond at first, but we soon become consumed by the desire of the moment, never noticing the deadly sting of the sharp blade of sin as the blood consumed eventually becomes our own. The frozen blood of the knife tempts us all. Proverbs 5 says, gives us a warning. The wicked person is doomed for his or her sins. They are ropes that catch and hold you. You shall die because you will not listen to the truth. You have let yourself be led away into incredible folly. So let us get back to the narrative. Delilah does not quit. She is persistent like a constant drip that wears away stone. Notice that the next time Sansom gets closer to the truth, he mentions his hair now. He replied, If you weave seven braids of my hair into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke up from his sleep and pulled up the pen and the loom and the fat with the fabric. Delilah then turns her charm on full blast and tells him to stop toying with her. She, she complains that he's making her look like a fool. But he looks like a fool by sticking with her, by pursuing sin. She nags and prods him day after day until he is tired to death. It's just like his first wife who nags until he gives the secret away to the riddle. But this time he gives the secret away to his strength. The text says in verse 17, he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head. He said, because I've been a Nazarite separate, set apart to God since birth. If my head were, were shaved, my strength would believe me, and I would become as weak as any other man. Once again, he got up. He planned to shake the men off as before, but he didn't realize that his strength had left him. The text says, where, the strength, where his strength really lied, it says that the Lord left him. You see, his hair wasn't really the source of his strength. 
His hair was only an outward symbol of an inner reality that he was to be consecrated to the Lord. But like a pagan, Samson began to think that the external was the source of his blessing. Even before Delilah's razor cut his hair off his head, his heart was beginning to drift away from a life consecrated to God. And sometimes as Christians, we fall into the same error of judgment. We think that if we just keep the externals, that we'll be blessed, while inside we have no real attachment to our, or affection to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We will perform duties, and Jesus calls that acting or hypocrisy. When David fell into sin with Bathsheba and ended up committing adultery and murder, David tells us this is what happened to him. That his bones wasted away. His strength was snapped as in the heat of summer. And we all know what that's like right now, right? Sin makes man weak and powerless. The tragedy of Samson goes on. He experiences mutilation, deportation, incarceration, and humiliation. We are told in chapter 16, verse 21, the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. Notice that his eyes were gouged out. It was his eyes that got him into trouble. Jesus says that it's better to lose an eye than to have the whole body cast into hell. Humiliation may be a way of putting your eye out. Perhaps you feel a bit like Samson. You feel ashamed. You feel humiliated. You feel useless. You feel unworthy. But let me tell you that God is a God of hope. Even when we're at our most hopeless state. If you look at verse 22, hope arises. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Let's continue to read. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. While they were high in spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called out Samson, and he performed it for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I can lean against him. But now the temple was crowded with men and women, and all the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O oh, sovereign Lord, remember me. O oh, God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get a revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them. His right on one side and left on the other. Samson said, Lord, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might. Then down came the temple on the rulers and all the peoples in it. Thus he killed many more when he died while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him and brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. 
He had led Israel for 20 years. You may be broken, but you are not useless. We see that Samson, the strong, is revealed, uh, revealed as a weak man. But it ends up with a weak man who is stronger than ever than, than before. Only when he was weak do we see him really at his strongest point. When there was nothing left to support him except for two pillars, he turns to God and utterly depends upon him. He knows that his strength does not reside in him, but God alone. And so he prays, please, please. There he was at the depth of his humiliation. The people poured shame and contempt on him. But in prayer, he yearned for the glory of God, who is being mocked by Dagon. And, no, and so in self-sacrifice, he lets the power of God be displayed. God can do that too in your shame, in your weakness. Turn back to him in consecration now. God can use a place of shame for his glory. Didn't Jesus Christ do that upon the cross? Samson is a figure of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. So take cheer, my friends, in Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven. Your shame is taken away by him hanging there upon the cross. He is the pillar on which you can rest in your weakness. Turn back once again to God and a life consecrated to him so that his almighty power can work through you. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, even at the beginning of Genesis, you make a promise that would be saved through the childbearing. There is always a hope of someone to come special Messiah. As we look at all the biblical heroes in the Bible, we might want to emulate them, but as we look at Samson's life, we come to realize quickly that these heroes are often not somebody to emulate. But yet at the same time, we see that your grace is being revealed through them, that Christ is being revealed to us, and we thank you that ultimately... Christ did come, displayed his weakness so that he might conquer Satan once for all. We ask that you will continue to work in our lives, in our brokenness. Help us to learn to turn to you in our weakness and find strength in you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.